Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about books, research, and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have as a return guest on the program today the writer Lori Lyle. Lori was on the program last March to talk about the second of her classic artist biographies, Louise Nevelson, A Passionate Life, originally published in 1990. She has returned today to talk about her first artist's biography, Portrait of an Artist, a biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, originally published in 1980 by Seaview Books. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show again. So this book struck me after reading your Nevelson book first as having a lot in common with it. So perhaps the question is, what do these two artists have in common, and is this part of what attracted you to spending so much of your life diving into each of their lives? Well, yes. As two artists, they have this passionate vision mm-hmm. and a fierce determination to fulfill it, to express it. And uh, I guess I find this trait quite fascinating. I mean, it, it takes a certain amount of courage to open yourself up to your deepest feelings and then be willing to put them on paper mm-hmm. or canvas in the case of an artist. And uh, it wasn't always easy for either one of them. Nevelson suffered great depressions after a show was not well received. O'Keefe used to take to her bed when her pictures went up on the walls of the gallery out of, I guess, fearfulness or the risk of exposing her vision. But they persisted and they became self-actualized. They became fulfilled very much as artists. Mm -hmm. And so I just found this combination of vulnerability and fierceness in an artist quite intriguing. Yeah, it makes them extremely interesting as subjects for certain, both of them. But it also makes them both interesting models for other people, in a sense. Did you have an idea that you wanted these biographies to be this kind of a model for people? Or were you really just fascinated by them as people? When I first learned about O'Keefe, I was in my late 20s. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to forge a path in my own life. And so I gravitated to her story. At that time, 1970, was when a lot of young women were trying to live differently and fulfill their ambitions. And here was this artist who seemed to have done that and had a rich personal life as well. And so I truly thought, I want to know about her life, her choices for my own sake, but I also want to tell her story to other young artists or any young person involved in the creative arts. And I felt I had done that. When I finally finished the book, some young artist sent me a valentine. (laughs) A handmade valentine. A picture of a a mesa, a lace doily, Mm -hmm. and just the simple words, thanks for the O'Keefe book. Uh So it definitely was, it was something that spoke to me and, and spoke to others. And in the record, especially the art historical record, successful female artists are hard to find. And these are both very successful artists in terms of their work, aren't they? Both Nevelson and O'Keefe. I mean, they, yes. they never lacked for an audience and they were recognized. Nevelson, not fairly early on, but when she was recognized, she was really recognized. 
recognized. But in terms of O'Keeffe specifically as a model, you write, my portrait of the artist, the evolution of a Wisconsin's farmer's daughter nicknamed Georgie into the matriarch of modern art known as O'Keeffe was written with the hope that others might be moved by the example of her courageous, independent, and successful life. When I started researching her, and even before I decided to write the biography, she wasn't very well known. She'd gone through a period of living in New Mexico after Stieglitz's death, her husband Stieglitz, and hadn't exhibited widely or definitely not in New York. And it was not till 1970 when she did. And, and there had been nothing written about her. She wasn't really famous uh, the way she is now. You know, the thing about this is someone can be very successful and famous in their own time and then very quickly slip into the unconsciousness of the historical record and certainly of the public. And I think this has to do perhaps with the fact that we are talking about female artists. It's hard for them to be recognized and it's easy for them to be forgotten, I suppose, is the, uh, the lesson here. So you really have to attend. And a biography is a wonderful way to do that, to keep the attention on people who deserve to have attention. Well, and once she became known, Mm -hmm. Through her work, she published several books about her work. And through my book, it was a moment. It was everybody uh, wanted to know mm -hmm. more about her. Yeah, there was a great Whitney show right about then, wasn't there? Was not, that, that was 1970. That was yeah. her, the big retrospective she had in New York where I yeah. first saw her work. What do you think it is that makes O'Keeffe such a model, both in her work and in her person, which are related? And in, in your biographies, the art always takes a prominent place because it's what's driving this individuation and this personality formation. Uh, it's, you know, the art drives the biography to some extent with both of these artists, doesn't it? So what is it that makes O'Keeffe such an interesting model, both as a person in her biography, but also in her art? A lot of people have tried to analyze her charisma and not always successfully, but I think it has to do with her single-mindedness. There's a certain purity to that, to her focus on her work and on her vision, expressing her vision, her values. I think that's quite intriguing to people because most people can't live that way. It was a heightened, a heightened vision, almost a static vision of beauty, you know, just rapture about nature that she just devoted her life to. And it's quite fascinating. So that's the personal. In terms of the work, you see these feelings about nature expressed in her work. She never painted people, and she played again and again with the same kinds of images, the large flowers, the, uh, the bones, the crystalline sky of, mm. of the Southwest, the rich colors around Lake George, the sea. Whatever she focused on became quite dramatic and quite fascinating, quite gorgeous. And compelling. The art reflects her in that way, doesn't it? In the sense yes. that it's so focused and uh, very focused, really, and so large at the same time. So, yeah. um, oh, it's there's a, such a direct interplay between the personality and the painting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost inseparable. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word charisma because it comes up over and over on this program when we're talking about books generally and, and, and individuals and especially artists. And no one, even people who write on it specifically, can define what it is. I mean, you know, everyone knows charisma. You know it when you see it. It's like, you know, I should say it's not like pornography. It's a bad, it's a bad, it's a bad uh, comparison. But you do know it when you see it, but you can't really describe what makes someone charismatic. But 
over the years, I have come to think that it has a lot to do with the presence a person has. That it's a presence that often makes other people who are in the presence of someone who has this presence feel absent in a way. So you wonder yourself, why aren't I as alive as this person that I'm looking at? And why is everybody in the room conscious that they're in the room? What is it that does this? And I wonder if it isn't that kind of presence, you know? So it's not necessarily physical beauty or even what you would call personality generally. I think sometimes it is this kind of presence. It's an intense presence. It's a kind of intensity to that person yeah. that is so different. I mean, it does make her absolutely fascinating. And I don't want to go back into the Nevelson book, but Nevelson also really made an impression, didn't she, as a, as a person? Uh, yes, um, she did. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your research since our program is about research? You mentioned the Beinecke where uh, the Stieglitz papers are. And I was actually in the Beinecke in the mid 80s when I don't know if they were acquiring some of the papers at that point, but we had some of them, I'm sure. So you researched in the Beinecke, I expect. Uh, and oh, yes, was, uh, and that's a wonderful place to research. I mean, you, you probably you know that building yeah. and, and the wonderful reading room on the lower floor uh, with the courtyard and that beautiful diffused white light that comes in. So I was living in New York at the time, and I would take the train to New Haven and spend a day at the Beinecke and reading O'Keeffe's letters. These were letters she'd written to all kinds of friends. And I just found the way she wrote (laughs) was also intense and and kind of distilled and and quite powerful, not unlike her paintings. Very direct and strong and the handwriting was quite amazing form of calligraphy uh-huh. so i just felt myself elevating off of my, my chair <laughs> so <Yeah>. i read these <laughs> these letters mm-hmm. so that was where i started and then i read everything i mean mm-hmm. i read all the reviews and anything that had been written about her and then i traveled in my little car to new mexico via the south where she mm-hmm. had lived for a while and had taught gone to school, Texas, where she had taught. And then I returned by Wisconsin, where she was born, Chicago, where there were more papers and paintings. So, I mean, I, I interviewed everybody I could find who had ever known her or who had crossed her life, particularly the old people. I felt it was really important to get to them. Yeah. They were in their 80s, 90s. And um, that's what I did. I just searched. I was a detective. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, it must have been fascinating because the people around her and Stieglitz both were fascinating people. I mean, the, the life that I know mostly from that time is Edna St. Vincent Millay, and many of the same people are crossing paths there, you know, the editors of the masses, uh, people who were living in the village in the first 20 years of the 20th century. So. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's wonderful to do a first biography mm-hmm. because it had never been done before. I mean, uh-huh. and, and pulling together all the pieces was absolutely thrilling. The people that you interviewed, did you have to sort out what their own agendas were ever? Because she did have some conflict later on with people that were very supportive of her early. And she was a prickly person in some way. I mean, she, she didn't get on really well with everybody. So No, she definitely did not suffer fools. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, she, so. she had a lot of friendships. They weren't the kind of lifelong, intimate friendships that yeah. other people have, but they were people who were companions at certain points in her life. Some people who had known her very early on, like as a teacher in Texas, mm-hmm. they were forth, very forthcoming. I even managed to interview a couple of her classmates when uh, she was in high school. Oh, and interesting. That was pretty, 
they were very, very, very helpful. And of course, I, you know, when you get to be very elderly, sometimes you remember the past better than the present. Tell they, me about it. So. They, were, they were full of stories, yeah. you know. But then when I got to New Mexico and attempted to interview people who knew her in the present, it was a little more tricky because she was quite controlling. And they, everybody knew she was very private and they didn't want to cross her. So she was still alive then when you started. She was, this. Yes, she, was, yeah. she was alive. She was alive through the whole thing in oh. even the publication. Oh, was she? Oh, oh. <laughs> she was. Oh, so did you interview her or? or you, well, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. What did you meet her then? That's the question. Uh, right? No, no, no. Uh, uh, I tried to, but uh, she was very looked very askance at this girl, this young uh, girl from New York, yeah. who had come out to New Mexico and was saying she was going to write. A book about her. She mm. didn't, didn't, never heard of me, of course. I had I came from journalism, not the art world. And so she was quite wary of this whole business. And as a matter of fact, that summer I was out in New Mexico, it was summer of 1977, she wrote me a letter and said, don't you dare write this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I never got the letter because I had... Oh. Sent it to where I had been living in Santa Fe, and uh -huh. by then, by the time she sent the letter, I had moved to Abiquiu, and I never got the letter until a few years ago. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, really? That's so interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> you know, would it have stopped you? It wouldn't. It, I don't know if it would have stopped me because yeah. I had a book contract, but yeah. it would have definitely instilled a lot of fear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was she living with Juan Hamilton at the time, who was helping control her he was, image? He, yeah. was, he was her assistant. Because there was a point where she started to welcome, not publicity quite, but some view into her life as an artist, uh, some publicity, uh, with, some when she was with him. Yeah. managed to get in. Yeah. The door, but not many. Not many, no. So th this was quite a feat for you as a challenge, for sure. I mean, apart from the writing, the thing, and all the research and everything else that, that goes into doing this kind of project, the circumstances were rather formidable, yes, in terms of yes, her. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. I, it was quite daring, you know, looking back on it. And I didn't know what would happen if she would try to get her lawyers to stop oh, had no idea. But, you know, after the book came out, I didn't hear a word. I sent her a copy of the book with a nice note and never heard a word. She was pretty blind by then, so she oh, couldn't have read the book. Yeah. Somebody could have read it to her. But her lawyers must have decided that it was accurate. Uh -huh. It's fair. I had certainly done my homework. I had yeah. interviewed everybody and gone to every archive and museum. Yeah, and, was there an archive in New Mexico at that point? No, there is now. Yeah. There's a there's a research yeah. institute. Yes, yeah. No. no, there was no archive. I mean, it was. I did some work at the southwest room of the New Mexico State Library, uh -huh. but uh, there was no archive about O'Keefe. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. There nothing written about O'Keefe. There was yeah. just some catalogs here and there, but they were mostly in New York. In, yeah. in museum libraries in New York. That's interesting. Stieglitz was so keen to have her work seen, but he didn't do the other kinds of public relations that ordinarily you do when you were promoting an artist. So. Well, some people in his circle wrote about her, wrote articles. Ah, yes. Uh -huh. But she didn't particularly care for them because they yeah. were Freudian. Yeah. And they basically described her as the epitome of womanhood and writing and painting from a female point of view, which she resented. 
But I think there were several people who wanted to write about her, museum directors, biographers, but she always seemed to stop them at some point. And so actually my situation was advantageous because I had a background as a journalist. And instead of confronting her, I just worked around her. I just mm-hmm. went in a big circle around her and uh, gathered a tremendous amount of material. That's wonderful, really. And you really provide a portrait of her. I mean, it is a portrait. You, you name the, the, the title is Portrait of an Artist, and it is a kind of portrait. I don't know if you thought of yourself as uh, you know, a painter. There's a lot of imagery in it, but you really do capture your subject here in a wonderful way. In the Nevelson book, you began that book talking about how Nevelson's childhood in a rural town in Maine found its way into her art and her whole life, how it affected her later in life. And in this book, you start O'Keefe out chronologically in her childhood in some prairie, Wisconsin. Can you talk a little about that part of the book and about that part of O'Keefe's life in Wisconsin? Well, she lived on a farm. She was one of... um a large number of children in the family. Her father was a, a farmer, dairy farmer, and had fields of wheat and corn. And she became very aware of the seasonal changes in Wisconsin, which are very dramatic. And she played outside. It really was, I think, the basis of her passion for nature. You never think of her as a Midwestern farm girl. I never did. I associate her, of course, with Stieglitz and, and New York City and also with the Southwest. She did return to Wisconsin, where one of her sisters lived, to visit from time to time. And, and there's some beautiful paintings of barns that she did at that time. It expressed her roots and her appreciation of these you know, wonderful windowless structures, mm-hmm. farm structures. I think her Midwestern background had other impacts on her, too. When she was part of the Stieglitz group in New York, and the men in the group kept talking about the great American novel, and the great American this, and the great American that. She thought it was very funny, because most of them had never traveled west of the Hudson River. (laughs) And she felt they didn't even know America. And she felt she knew it much better than these New Yorkers. In Wisconsin, O'Keefe seems to have formed very early on in her life an idea that she wanted to be an artist, didn't she? I mean, she seemed to know early on that this is what she wanted to make herself into. Yes. She and her sisters took art lessons, and she always took art lessons and, and gravitated to art in a way perhaps her sisters didn't. She was regarded as sort of the, the school artist when uh-huh. she went to school in Chatham Academy in Virginia. So I think looking back, she may have regarded her desire to become an artist perhaps in a different way than when she was experiencing it. Because when she was growing up, it was part of a girl's education, uh-huh. the kind of family uh-huh. she came uh-huh. to learn how to draw. Interesting. So she becomes very good at it. She realizes she has a talent, but she yes. also has a drive to, to do this. That's yes. She, yeah. 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 I mean, there was never any other career that she tried. So I think by the age of 12 or 14, she was set on that path. And then there aren't very many places in America for an artist to really study at this time, but she finds her way to the Art Students League in New York, which was the place for many great artists, American artists, including Louise Nevelson, right, who spent some time training there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what kind of formal training does she get? Um, Well, she got very formal training 
at the Art Students League. Uh, William Merritt Chase was a grand presence there. And she won a prize for a very realistic still life mm -hmm. of a rabbit in a copper pot. Uh -huh. And a scholarship, interestingly, to spend a few weeks with other art students at Lake George, wow. where she eventually ended up spending a great deal of time because that's where the Stieglitz family had a home. Mm -hmm. But she didn't really like the art education she was getting. She couldn't understand the point of painting like everybody else, like copying images. And there was a period she became ill with typhoid and a period of studying at the Art Institute of Chicago, which was the same kind of formal training. It wasn't until she encountered another art professor who had a deep background in Asian art, who talked about art differently and the purpose of art differently, that she became very excited about resuming her life as an artist. Was that Dow? Was that his name? Yeah, Ellen Bennett and Dow. They were art professors, uh -huh. art teachers at the time. And no one was urging her then to go off to Europe to study, right? Which is what often artists would, would well, do. Well, she didn't have the money to do it. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> so she developed her own style. Um, yeah, and she had to stand on her own two feet because uh -huh. the family moved to Virginia for various reasons, basically having to do with the fact that there was tuberculosis in the family and the father was very fearful of dying from it the way his brothers had it. So they moved the family to Virginia. But he didn't make the transition well. He never really found a way to earn a living. And so she had to stand on two feet and take jobs as an artist, as a commercial artist for a while. Then she eventually gravitated to teaching art. Which she does eventually in Texas, doesn't she? Yes, she, she does. has a job there, yeah. She does. And at about this time, she is noticed by Alfred Stieglitz. You know, there are many women, talented artists, men and women actually, who never really get noticed. I mean, that's just the way things are. And especially it's very difficult for women to get noticed. But she was uh, lucky enough to meet Stieglitz. And, and then he did take notice of her art. It's kind of, I think, what attracted her to him, I, I'm assuming. And I wonder if you can talk about Stieglitz and what happens here, because, you know, it was a lucky break for her, uh, Stieglitz was, wasn't it? Well, he was, he was running a gallery huh. in New York where he was showing the avant-garde artists of Europe. And it was really quite progressive, a radical view of painting and photography for that matter. And he was also very interested in the American idea. He'd studied in Germany, and when he returned to America, he kept looking for people who expressed what he considered the American idea, the American mm -hmm. art. And so when, when he saw this girl's mm -hmm. uh, sketches, which a friend of hers had shown him, he was very excited. They were semi-abstract mm -hmm. uh, charcoal drawings. And he just felt they were very personal, very strong, very daring, and very feminine. And he hung them on the walls mm -hmm. of his gallery. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then they started a long correspondence and he encouraged her. He sent her books and magazines to read and she kept sending him drawings and watercolors that he found very exciting. Particularly when she was in Texas, he had never been to Texas. He didn't know much about it. And here were these extraordinary watercolors, these big skies, big landscapes, mm -hmm. big horizons done in a really quite innovative way. And he was very excited by this and expressed his excitement 
to her, which was, of course, immensely encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was highly regarded, very interesting individual in the arts world in his own right, wasn't he? I mean, apart yes. from being an incredibly an, a talented photographer, he was charismatic himself, and he formed a society of people around him who would come to see him and talk, and, and he liked to talk, didn't he? I mean, he liked to talk. He was a big talker. He was a big talker, yeah. So maybe an extrovert, I'm not sure, but certainly made an impression in his time, something that even now is easy to overlook. Well, there have been several biographies written about him, and his work gets exhibited from time to time within yeah. other photography shows and, and, and separately, and, and his images of O'Keefe get exhibited regularly yeah. and reproduced and used. So you mentioned the charcoal drawings that he looks at, and among those were drawings that she sent him to constitute a kind of Jackson Pollock moment for her, when she really delves into herself, you know, in a moment when she's somewhat depressed and on hard times, and then she comes up with a series of charcoal drawings that have in them the kinds of forms that she later becomes known for in all her work, right? I mean, this is an important moment for her, this group of charcoals um, that are very abstract, but they're also figurative forms also. Yeah, these are the forms that, that Steve was first saw. And she, she did them. She was, at that point, she was teaching in South Carolina at a woman's college like this. Mm -hmm. And very unhappy, feeling very isolated, feeling half in love with a, with a man she, she knew in New York. And she just sat down and, and it's poured out of her. And she said, if I can't please anybody around me, I can please myself. Uh -huh. so she just decided she was going to express what it was she felt the images that were in her head. And that became her kind of mantra that she painted for herself. She was her own audience, wasn't she? Uh, she didn't look to the critics particularly for recognition. Of... I think most artists do that. Uh -huh. I mean, that's, that's where the powerful motivation comes from, is, yeah. you know, basically expressing something that you need to know. Yeah, and just within yourself. You know, I was comparing her a bit to Jackson Pollock when he had his revelation there, with, you know, with the action painting. And this is that kind of a moment for her, isn't it? These forms are really unusual. When you look at these charcoal drawings, I think they're among the best things she ever did, and they're but just she, so pure. She didn't know their importance or their uh -huh. value until Stieglitz. He told her that they were important, but until then, she didn't know. She really thought. You know, maybe she was crazy. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> She'd never seen anything like that yeah. herself. And these were the forms that the critics were talking about in Freudian terms also that she didn't... Well, that like was the... Yeah. Uh, well, some I mean, of them, yes, yeah. some of the drawings, yeah. but particularly the painting. And they, they felt very sensuous and expressive from a woman's point of view to other women. And then she realizes somewhere along the line that scale can be really important to her in expressing what she wants to do, expressing her vision of the world, yes, especially with the flowers. Well, definitely she did the close-ups of flowers. It's like the viewer is the bumblebee. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're reduced to the size of, of a little insect. Yeah. Enormous flower. Incredibly effective, I have to say. I, you know, I'm thinking back to the history of art. Who else does this? Obviously, she just came up with this. And uh, frankly, it's a very American thing to do. You know, it's big. Everything is bigger than life in a way, as she was. Yeah. Really wonderful. And then talking about bigger than life, she goes off to Texas then to teach, right? At about this I don't know if she likes it there quite. She, she did like teaching. I think she liked her students. I get that impression from the, from the biography. 
But on the other hand, there were all the foibles of teaching in Texas, the requirement that she had to teach out of standard textbooks. Yeah, I think you have it right. She really enjoyed exposing these students who hadn't really been taught anything about art. Uh-huh. She taught them design uh-huh. and just to appreciate the beauty and simple things. Um, but she was also in Texas during World War One, and she uh-huh. was pretty much of a anti-war uh-huh. <laughs> person and felt a lot of negativity because uh-huh. of political views. Uh-huh. And it was also during the uh, pandemic of 1918, and she became ill. And oh, um, she got she got the well. I don't. It's never Spanish really flu? been clear oh. whether she had the Spanish flu or mm. some other flu, but she had to leave Texas to go to a place that was warmer mm. with a friend. Maybe it was to southern Texas, southern part of Texas. Mm. And so it was a time of of excitement because she just adored the landscapes and the beauty and the sunsets Mm. and the sunrises that she Mm. saw in Texas, but she had trouble with the people. She was a very physical person. She liked to hike and wander around the landscape, didn't she? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, also she didn't have a car. She didn't have a bicycle. (laughs) If she was going to see anything, she had to go on her own two feet most of the time. You know, just as a genre, what your biography reminds me of as a medievalist is, you know, a saint's life. Because she has these illnesses that kill so many people, typhoid, if this is the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu. And there are, of course, saints that do this kind of thing. I'm thinking there's an English saint who becomes an anchorite who survives the plague and and decides to become an anchorite. I can't think of her name right now, but... O'Keefe reminds me of this, especially in the charisma. Um, going out into the desert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Going into the desert, yeah. And being out, being alone. Mm-hmm. You know, out in the desert. Yeah. Very saint-like. With her skulls, of course. Well, the skulls were painted during World War Two, most wow. of them. And yeah. people interpreted it. This is sort of a morbidity. You know, she really was feeling quite a bit of despair about the world mm. entering into another war. Yeah, for me, they're my favorite among her works as subjects, as subjects for her painting. There's something so absolute about them. They are representations of death in some way, but they undermine death in a strange way and that they're beautiful objects and they're pure form. And they leave you with a sense that creatures may die, but even so, there is a form survives in a sense, you know, and it's beautiful. And it relates to all form, you know, living and in. And she said, she would say when people said, oh, this is so morbid, she would say, well, you know, bones last. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do, exactly. Yeah. flowers wilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they sit still also. Uh, she didn't like painting portraits, right? Because uh, people didn't sit still. Um, well, I don't think yeah. she just was that interested in people. Okay. O'Keefe then, she's certainly known to feminists. I mean, she was a kind of heroic figure back in the 70s when she was rediscovered, uh, you could say, after the Whitney retrospective. But she wasn't known herself as a feminist, except maybe as a model, you know, in practice. But she was, you write, a member of the National Women's Party right from its beginnings before women's suffrage. So can you talk a bit about her relationship to feminism and maybe about her politics in, in general? Well, she had a very good friend from art school named Anita Pollitzer, a member of the Women's Party, National Women's Party, and became an officer of it. And she definitely believed in women's rights. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, she didn't want to be regarded as a woman painter. She felt she was a painter. And so there was a little bit of a conflict built in. Mm -hmm. But she did, in 1926, she she took a train to Washington, D.C. and gave a talk. 
for the National Women's Party about the importance of women taking responsibility for their own lives. You know, that was her, her attitude. She was also very supported in her early years as a painter in the mm-hmm. 20s and 30s by other women, mm-hmm. by women's clubs, individual women, philanthropists and collectors. She was seen as a, as a model, a female model. And I just think the way she lived her life was as a feminist. Uh-huh. But she never was anybody who would take ideology too seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and again, she didn't want to be a female artist icon. She she felt that was another box. Stieglitz had a a bit of a difficult time also as the 30s came along and he was in New York in this political scene. There was pressure on him and his aesthetic essentially to move to the kind of mural painting and the public art and the political art that was taking hold at the time. And he resisted, didn't he? Uh, Yes, he did. And so did O'Keefe. So can you talk then a bit about her debate with Michael Gold? Because they did set her up as a debater to defend Stieglitz's point of view here. Well, yes. Michael Gold was editor of The New Masses, and he wanted to interview her. So she had a conversation with him, which is pretty fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) He basically tried to make her defend him painting beautiful objects, and she did. Basically, he regarded this as non-political imagery, Mm -hmm. and it was very different from like the trash can school and Mm -hmm. the artists who painted poor people. And so when Michael Gold started talking about how she was ignoring the political situation, she said, well... What about the oppression of women? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful exchange here. You, you see just what her centeredness buys her in terms of yeah. being able to hold her own in a situation yeah. like this. Yeah. And she accuses him of wanting art to be a political tool. And she mm-hmm. says it's, it's not supposed to be a political tool. And if it was, it would be inferior art. He idealized what Diego Rivera was doing mm-hmm. in his murals. And he said, well, the common man can relate to this. Mm-hmm. They can't necessarily relate to what, what she's doing and other artists. Mm-hmm. In the but she held her own and uh, invited him home for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Your account of the exchange there really is. Um, did she fit in with Stieglitz's crowd itself? I mean, he always had a group of people around him and uh, she would be home there when she married him and, and in the apartment in New York. She had friendships, uh, particularly with John Maron. She had friendships, but she was she was the only woman, so she was kind of in a class by herself. I imagine these scenes that I, I got the feeling from your book of the, the men sitting around talking and her being in the background, being quiet, not having much to say sometimes. She didn't want to participate in those yeah. conversations. Yeah. I mean, she used to say, well, they would take a position in the morning and talk about it all day, and then they would take the opposite position by evening. <laughs> Yeah. It wasn't important. You know, there's something about her, her work especially, that's just so wholly original. Not like anything one encounters in the world of painting in the 20th century anywhere else. I mean, sometimes you can find slight resemblances, you know, with other artists, but not much, American or otherwise. Does she fit into any contemporary school, do you think, or trend, or is she just a, a complete original? It's hard to put her in a box. Uh-huh. Um, But one of the most interesting things that I read was that her abstractions were considered, they were done on a small scale, what the abstract Mm -hmm. expressionists later did in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And she was first Uh uh, with that kind of abstraction. 
and you can see the broad bands of, of color and some of those early watercolors. Uh -huh. and, then, and then you remember what Rothko did in a different way in the 50s. So I don't think at that point there was anybody painting exactly the way she was painting. I would say the main influence on her was photography. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, the, the way, I mean, she, she looked at a lot of Stieglitz photographs, Paul Strand's photographs, Ansel Adams' work, and the cropping of photographs, cropping of images became interesting to her. Ah, interesting. That's really and, interesting. And so she, she planned her canvases in a different way as a uh -huh. result of, of seeing so much photography. Yeah. Yeah, Stieglitz uh, and photographers like them are very formally conscious about how forms take shape on a two-dimensional surface on a, in a square. O'Keeffe seemed to need and seemed to be destined for a place of her own. And that place was not Stieglitz's forest of skyscrapers in New York or his Lake George estate, but it turned out to be the New Mexico desert. And she seems to have come into her own majesty in that majestic landscape. So can you talk about how she comes to New Mexico and then becomes part of the landscape in New Mexico? Well, her first trip was for a few months during the summer of 1929 when she went with a friend, Beck Strand. And she was just overtaken by what she was experiencing. She later said, you know, sometimes you have an experience of something and there's no way back. Ah, uh -huh. And she felt that's what happened to her mm -hmm. that summer in New Mexico, that she would never be the same. And then she wanted to return subsequent summers mm -hmm. and paint there. And... Of course, that created problems with Stieglitz, who mm -hmm. was not about to travel, certainly not to New Mexico. And it led to her mental collapse in 1933, where she felt so torn between staying with Stieglitz, staying at his side as his wife, and pursuing what she knew she had to, to do as an artist in New Mexico. There were complications that we don't need to go into. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was only after Stieglitz realized that she had stopped painting that, that, that she would be destroyed as an artist, mm -hmm. as a person. He said, I feel like I'm a murderer. She would never paint again unless she could return. And then their marriage changed and they worked out a different understanding, a different arrangement. And she did return to New Mexico, bought property there actually in, in a, on a ranch and in a village, and then eventually moved there after Stieglitz's death. It's a beautiful landscape. I mean, I've been there many times myself. Uh -huh. I understand completely why she was so taken with it. I mean, the air is so clear. You can just see so far. I mean, for an artist, yeah. it has to be thrilling. Yeah, me too. Arizona, New Mexico, both. But the landscape is not what you think if you were raised where I was in the East and all you knew of the West were black and white cowboy movies. The ground is purple and yellow in places, uh, not to mention, you know, and the red. Mazes, uh, yeah. the mazes are pink. And, yeah. I mean, uh -huh. it's just, it's extraordinary landscape. And the sky is a constant drama, I mean, mm -hmm. between sunsets and storms and O'Keefe used to take his little ladder and go and sit on, on the roof of her flat house and, and just watch the sky, have a, yeah. have a chair there. It's like she went, was going to the theater and she would watch the sky and the clouds and the colors. 
O'Keefe is a very visual person, for sure, like Nevelson. But like Nevelson, when she does talk, when we have quotes from her, she's incredibly interesting. And I mentioned that passage with the debate with Michael Gold. Uh, she's very much like that. Her quotes that you pass on that are really just wonderful, that just strike me. One had to do with a breakdown, actually, with the breakdown. She ended up going to a sanatorium, and they wanted her to undergo Freudian analysis. And, yeah. and her, her comment was, people who undergo Freudian analyses emerge as Freudian patients. <laughs> it's something to think about, you know. Um, yeah, she experienced depression. So she spent some time then, I guess it was in doctor's hospital uh, yeah, at that point in her life, was diagnosed with psychoneurosis. So for all her strength, you do get from the biography, anyway, a certain sense of vulnerability or, or fragility about her. Something of a paradox, I think, because on the other hand, she does come off also as perfectly well-adjusted person because so, she is so centered and sure of herself. So is there a contradiction here? I mean, is she a fragile in some way? I think if she couldn't work, if she would stop from working, uh -huh. you know, that was very destructive to her. But you also have to realize she was also very independent and self-sufficient until she met Stieglitz. And when she met Stieglitz, she opened herself up to him in a very profoundly intimate way. And in a way, she'd never opened herself to anyone else. And then when she felt betrayed by him, because when she started to become so absorbed in her work and, and then going to New Mexico, he had an affair with a, a much younger woman. And she felt deeply, deeply hurt by this. And anyone would. And that's the fragility I think you see. And you know, also at that time, people did suffer from deadly diseases in a way that we've, well, maybe now we've, remembered because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all around it, us yeah. it was much more common and i just think it made some people live more intensely yeah. so there's a reticence about her sometimes i sense uh oh, yeah. you know, and she's reserved in many ways a very formal person in some ways but she did also have close friends and she besides stevens yeah. uh, one she was uh, jean toomey she had companions uh, yeah and dorothy brett and uh, yeah she, she'd have companions for time yeah, yeah. at a time she there was a young woman Maria Chabot, who used uh -huh. to spend the summers with her in New Mexico, helping her, well, basically being a cook and going on camping trips with her, an uh -huh. enabler that would uh -huh. allow her to paint more. And in New York, she had artist friends that she enjoyed. And Beck Strand, Paul Strand's wife, was, uh -huh. a, was a friend of hers. But these weren't people she spent a lot of time with. Uh -huh. <laughs> she was a loner. Yeah, Henry McBride, you also mentioned, the critic, whom she liked, actually. She didn't like all and critics. She, but, he yeah. wrote very charming reviews. Uh -huh. I think yeah. she, they amused her. Yeah, the pieces that you have of his writing in here are really interesting, really interesting. You guys have really got an original mind, uh, really appreciated what she was about, I think. So, and then uh, one person uh, she also comes to like, actually, who becomes a very good friend later in her life when she loses part of her eyesight is Juan Hamilton, who becomes an assistant to her, but then he becomes more than an assistant. Well, he became a friend. This is at a time when she was in her 80s and she was yeah. losing her eyesight and she needed someone to read her mail. I uh -huh. mean, she became dependent. And yeah. here's this, a young guy shows up, who's a college graduate, who can help her in a way that other people she had around the house could not. And he became very important to her. 
It reminds me of the Nevelson at the end of her life when she moves to steel sculpture and she meets that Boston gallerist whose name doesn't pop up in my mind, but he helps her a lot. I'm sure, yeah. Of course, Hamilton isn't a gallerist and he, he, he can't provide her with that, but he does provide her with encouragement and she does keep working. I mean, she, she paints after she loses her eyesight. She didn't completely lose it, but she was disabled. She lost her peripheral vision. It was very sad. I mean, you know, it's a terrible thing for an artist to lose their eyesight. Yeah. Toward the end of her life, she had occasion to fly sometimes, and she really liked painting images of the earth from the air, didn't she? I mean, those are yes. some of my favorite paintings. After yeah. Stuglitz died, she decided to do some traveling. Uh-huh. And she went to Europe for the first time, and she went to Asia, and she went to South America. And the experience of flying and looking down on landscapes and patterns of rivers became very fascinating to her. And it, it started a whole new form of painting. Then there were the great cloud paintings. I'm talking about uh -huh. scale. Yeah. She was in her late 70s. She did probably the largest painting of her life against the back wall of her garage. I think it was like 24 feet by uh -huh. 8 feet. And it's all clouds, these puffy white clouds against this blue, pink, perfectly beautiful sky. Hmm. It's a wonderful painting. Is that on display anywhere, do you happen to know, or did a museum ever Well, the last time I was aware of where it was, it was the Art Institute of Chicago. And they uh -huh. had it over an entrance to a large gallery. It was uh -huh. a perfect place for it. I don't uh -huh. know if it's still there. Do you have any favorites yourself of her works? Oh, it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's uh -huh. so many. I mean, I, I tend to like the abstractions. Uh -huh. And there was a beautiful show of her abstractions at the Whitney Museum a few years ago. I would say they're, they're my favorites. Yeah. Her work is still showing here and there, isn't it? It seems to me I recall there was an exhibit in New York back a, a year or so ago. Her work is usually included in shows at the Met, at the mm -hmm. Metropolitan Museum in New York. They have some wonderful paintings of hers, the Black Iris and other series. Yeah. And very often, there are more than a few of her works on display. When Stieglitz was alive, she had the good fortune to have a show every year that he would put on of her work. Yes. Uh, he and then Mitchell Kennerly also was one of those names that crosses Edna St. Vincent Millay's path. He's the person actually who has the uh, contest that allows her to become well-known when she's very, very young. But uh, Kennerly also had a gallery, didn't he, that she displayed? Yeah, and, and there was a time when Stieglitz did not have a gallery, and then he, he approached Kennerly and asked if he would show a few work. That was a brief period, yeah, and then uh -huh. he, he got another gallery, and he uh -huh. did show her work every year, yeah, yeah. which was a great help, uh -huh. and it was also pressure uh, she had to produce every year. And it definitely was a wonderful thing for her as an artist. Mm -hmm. So you wrote this in 1980, when almost nothing had been published at that time on Georgia O'Keeffe. Has much been published since that time? Well, I just want to say that there's been some wonderful books about O'Keefe that have come out since mine did, and particularly the letters. There's a very large volume of letters between O'Keefe and Stieglitz uh -huh. that's been published. And I think anybody who's interested in O'Keefe should read them, mm -hmm. or at least dip into them. You really get a very vivid sense of her development as an artist. Over time, since you wrote this some time ago, and you know, I'm sure you're not thinking about O'Keefe all the time, has doing this been an influence on you in some way, uh, you know, on your person? I'm not thinking about the fact that it was a very successful biography and you did the Nevelson biography and you're still a successful writer. 
But just being exposed to a life like this so deeply, so deeply, you know, you know someone I expect that you write a biography about more than you know your own self in a way, because you're interviewing all the friends, you're reading everything that's written on this person. Did doing this biography have an effect on you? I mean, did it change change your life? It's a very interesting (laughs) question, because I've just written a memoir. Ah, uh Ah, I was going to ask you about your next, your next, your next work. So, uh and in this memoir, which is called word for word, which is about the writing life, my writing life, I go into a great deal about uh, writing about O'Keefe and O'Keefe's uh-huh. influence on me uh, as a young woman. It was very, very powerful, very profound. I was drawn to her because of her independence and her creativity and her the sense that she had fulfilled herself. And um, after I wrote the book, I totally changed my life. I left my marriage, uh-huh. I left New York, I moved to the country, and I became a different kind of person. Mm-hmm. So it, she did have a very profound effect on me, and I was looking for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I was drawn to her in the first place. I wanted to know. Was it her art that stimulated this then, or this transformation in you? Uh, I mean, was, apart from the biography. No, it was the way she lived, her uh-huh. choices, her dedication to what she really believed in. And her values were, I mean, it was really, it was more profound than the work. The work was an expression of her passions Uh and her her inner self. And my later books have been also self-expression. I was writing, of course, in the third person when I wrote the two biographies. And after Uh that, I started to write more from my own experience Uh and more in the first person. And of course, Uh the memoir it's totally in the oh, yeah, person. first person. Yeah. I suppose, you know, the moral here is for a real artist, their life can become a work of art in a sense. I mean, the way they live their lives is art. I suppose that's the case with O'Keefe here. It could sure. be good art or bad art. Bad, or bad art. <laughs> yeah, it could be good or bad. And Nevelson also, very much her life was her own work of art. And she was her own work of art. And O'Keefe was her own work of art. And I suppose, you know, thinking of Rilke's poem on the bus of Apollo, you know, once you got into her life, not just her painting, but her life, you're being exposed to something, a work of art that's called O'Keefe in the end. The Rilke poem ends, you must change your life. And that seems to have happened with you. We'll have to read your memoir when it comes out. It comes out in the, <laughs> comes out in the spring. Uh, yeah. And what was the title again? Word for Word, A Word Writer's for... Life. I'd like to thank you, Lori, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your book, Portrait of an Artist, a biography of George O'Keefe, still in print. And I look forward to your memoirs. Thank you. Okay, yeah, it was wonderful.